Will Page is not your usual economist. He's a polymath thinker who has chief economist at the Performing Rights Society, and then Spotify has shown how an economist with a seat at the top table can transform an organization's ability to think about its future. In this incredible show, you'll get a first-hand experience of an astonishing meta-thinker. John talks to Will about his career and his brilliant new book, Tarzan Economics, Eight Principles for Pivoting Through Disruption. All right. So, Will, um, let's start by giving our listeners a little background on your career and what you're currently up to at the moment. Uh, the background to the career is getting lucky, to quote Nile Rogers, and merging two passions. First was economics, which I was introduced to by my father at the young age of 11 years old. I became obsessive about it. And the second was music, which I was introduced to by my mother, who gave me a Queen cassette and you know, that was around 11 years old. So from that journey onwards, you had these two passions. But what was interesting for me, when we bring it right up to date into the sort of 2000s, the Napster area, if you like, was I couldn't understand why nobody got to merge these two passions and apply economics to music and music to economics. And what I was able to do in 2006 was, you know, get lucky again and move to London and by a woman of prayer to become the chief economist of the Performing Rights Society. So that's the, the collecting society for songwriters and publishers in the UK, the ASCAP equivalent of the US, the, the game or the SESM equivalent in the continent of Europe. And that came about by luck. You know, I literally stumbled across a op-ed article in the Financial Times on a bus, and read it before getting off the bus, and don't usually pick up newspapers on buses, but the Financial Times, the benefits outweigh the costs. And when I finished reading it, I was thinking, this person is talking about, you know, disruption, digitization of content. The article itself was headlined, Digital Ants Wreck the Music Industry's Picnic. What a great headline that is. And I looked at who wrote it. It was Adam Singer, Chief Executive Officer of the Performing Rights Society. Wow, a CEO wrote this. My dad told me never to be shy approaching people. The worst they can tell you is to back off or words to that effect. And you've been told that before, son. You'd be able to You'll be told that again. So I wrote him a letter to correct some mistakes he had in his article, which is interesting. It's a ballsy move by myself. Uh, in the article, he said, when, um, when supply increases, barriers to entry fall. And I wrote a letter to correct him to say, no, it's the other way around. When barriers to entry fall, then supply increases. You know, the ordering is quite important. He called me up in the government offices at this time as a government economist. And uh, we had this call come through the main switchboard. Adam Singer's on the phone for you. Oh, that guy, he'll be so angry at the letter. <laughs> I wrote to tell you off. <laughs> First thing he said to me was to acknowledge the mistakes. And he said, I'm dyslexic. And I was like, wow, what an open admission. And then you think about the mistakes he made. They were ordering mistakes. It kind of mm. makes sense. And then he said, come to London. We're going to sit you here in the office and quiz you for a day and see how you would apply your discipline, economics, a government economist, the music industry and came to London. Uh, he put me in this glass room during a heat wave, sweltering, uh, which is not good when you're from Scotland. And uh, he asked me a question. I'll give you a quick example. He said, how would you price a music catalog? I have no idea. Okay. I'm straight off the train, never worked in the music business before. You know, how would you price a music catalog? So you go back to your toolkit of economics and you think, well, how would you price a music catalog? And I came up with the idea of, I invent an auction. I design an auction that's suitable to the asset you're trying to sell, which is rights and music. He said to me, really? Expand on that idea of an auction. I said, well, you can have ascending price auctions, what we're used to in the UK, where you bid up the price. You can have descending price auctions, which is how you sell fish in Israel or flowers in Amsterdam, where you start at the top and work down, first in, first out. You can have first price seal bid, second price seal bid, all sorts of auction designs. I said, Adam, I designed an auction to work out the price of a music catalog. And he said to me, in 75 years of this business, I don't think anybody's ever thought about doing that. We just have a net present value publisher share multiple and still being used today. And that was a really interesting insight for me, which was I wasn't out of my depth as an economist. I was swimming quite good here. I was making good strokes. And that was important there. So hop, skipping, jumping around my career path. So from a government economist to the chief economist of the PRS, then meeting a young Daniel Eck, who had hair at the time, that's how I can age my Spotify years, um, in 2007, 2008, 
and working with a Swedish company on how they were going to get licensed by the PRS so they could launch in the UK in 2009, which was a huge success. And then in the Summer Olympics of 2012, moving across to Spotify full-time as their chief economist there. And I was there for the best part of a decade, uh, seeing con- the company launch around the world. And then bringing it right up to date, um, stepping down from that role in September 2019 to sit on my own in the British Library, uh, have no social life, sit in a book writing back cave, and the book got published on the 1st of April of this year, on April Fool's Day. What a great day to publish your first book. When the book when the book shops were closed due to lockdown as well. So, yeah, from government to the PRS to Spotify to completing my first ever book. Yeah, and I, I um, first became aware of it, um, and I should say the book's called Tarzan Economics, um, and we'll come to getting you to explain why it's called that in a minute. But um, in a review in the in the Financial Times, so it's kind of closed a bit of the circle from you on the bus, I guess, and. Um, you know, it was raving about it. And then I saw an interview with you in the Rolling Stone magazine talking about the book and it was absolutely fascinating. So I got it immediately. And uh, yeah, it was a, it's a brilliant read. I, I thoroughly Thank recommend you so it. Much. It's got a lot of um, surprise. It's not a, a book about, you know, in classic sense from an economist. It's got lots of very uh, you know, provocative ideas in it. But in the opening chapters of the book, you point to, um, mm-hmm. you, you start with a story that I, I, I believe you've told many, many times before about how your father explained economics to you or some the core principles. But at the root of it was um, about challenging your assumptions around what might seem like fairly straightforward deductions and decisions you might make that lead to unforeseen consequences. Can we start with that story? Sure. And I don't mind telling it many, many times again um, because the impact it had on me when I was 11 years old is the same impact that will have on your listeners. So just hear me out on this one. And I'm going to give you a twist at the end of the story, which I think is especially relevant to the audience at your podcast, your wonderful podcast gatherers. But yeah, as an 11-year-old kid, there's some sibling rivalry. My older brother had been taught what economics was, and I was jealous. I wanted to catch up. So I asked my dad, a maths and economics teacher, dad, 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 what's economics? And, you know, he was like, this is my summer holidays. As a school teacher, he had long summer holidays. And he's like, I, I'm not going to go into work during my holidays. No. He said, Dad, Dad, we're at the beach, and i got to know what economics is. And he said, oh, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to discuss work while I'm on my holidays. He said, Dad, you've got to tell me. My brother knows I need to know. Tell me what economics is. So we're sitting at this beach, a beach called Pease Bay, uh, south of Edinburgh, north of Berwick. Very famous for surfing now. Back in those days, we were just there in our swimming trunks getting tossed around in waves. Now it's big surfers and wetsuits. And um, yeah, we, we, we were there at this beach. And he said to me, right, son, let's pretend you're the prime minister of this country. Okay, big ask, but let's go with it. He said, I'm going to give you a tragic story, which is kids are drowning in British beaches all over the place. You know, more and more stories of fatalities in British beaches with British children drowning in British beaches. And you're going to be the prime minister. You're going to walk out at number 10 Downing Street. You're going to stare grieving parents in the face. You're going to stare hostile politicians in the face. You're going to stare an angry press corps in the face. And you, Billy Page, are going to tell them exactly what you're going to do to solve this problem of British kids drowning in British beaches. Now, as 11, you know the story, obviously, but adults today, my solution then is largely what adults say today. I came up, this is my idea, I came up with the idea of make swimming compulsory. That'll solve the problem. Okay, that's politics, son. Now we'll do some economics. This is so relevant in the time of a pandemic. You know, hmm. does your solution make the problem worse? And so I said, okay, apply the economics, Dad. He said, well, what do we know about the kids? Well, they're at the beach, Dad. Okay, where were they at the beach? They were in the water, Dad. What does that tell you about their ability to swim or not? That means they could swim, Dad. Why? Because kids who can't swim don't go into water. The penny dropped. So your policy is to make all kids, those kids who can't swim, all kids will be able to swim. Yes, Dad. Will we have more or less kids in the water as a result of your policy? We'll have more, Dad. And if 0.001% of them die fatally through drowning, will we have more or less deaths as a result? And my face just went cold white. I was making the problem worse. I, the best intentions of my men, I tried to solve the problem, but I was going to make it worse. And I got really upset. It's like, I gave that my best shot, Dad, and I've screwed up. 
what's the solution? He talked about information, being aware where those dangerous currents are, a flag system, which wasn't there at that time, you know, red, amber, green, and regulation, making sure kids have to be accompanied by parents into water, make sure there's lifeguards at present. But making swimming compulsory was not the solution to this problem. It was going to take something else. So that was fascinating for me then. It's been fascinating for every single person who's been hired by Spotify because I used that story in my induction talk for new hires and everybody was just like, I get it, I get it. It's abstraction, it's abstraction. But here's a twist. So 2006, I moved to London to start this career in the music industry. And like you, the general counsel of the PRS asked me the exact same question. How did you get into economics, Will? And I told the general counsel, a lawyer, economists, lawyers don't see eye to eye on many things, in fact, just about everything. I told this lawyer the story of my dad teaching me what economics was on the beach. This was my ambition for the rest of my career, to be an economist. And uh, we got to the conclusion of it, and I said to her, well, my solution was make swimming compulsory. What would have been your solution? And you know what the lawyer said to me? <laughs> she said, I'd just ban the kids from swimming. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful way of thinking. Around then, you think about piracy or how do you sue kids for file sharing? Just ban the kids from swimming. That will solve the problem. That's a beautiful example of why lawyers and economists don't see eye to eye for good reason. You know, they have one discipline, we have another discipline, and it takes two to tango. But uh, when I realized that was her response, I realized just how much upheaval was going to come onto the music industry thereafter. Many people may not be aware that organizations hire economists as a role um you know we know about the finance director um the operations director and so on but how, how many large organizations have a a chief economist in them do you think more and more uh, when i started i was alone uh, in music and i felt like i was alone across media and even in the regulation of media not that much economics but it's definitely grown i'd like to think i had a small part to play in that because you know Economists from other disciplines were going into jobs at Netflix or wherever saying, I've read all your stuff, how do I apply it? Which gives you a real sense of job satisfaction, but more and more now. But I still don't think there's enough. I still don't think the balance is right. I think the amount of people employed in, let's say, marketing will outnumber the amount of people employed in economics by a ratio of around about 55 gazillion to one. So I think there you've got an imbalance between policy-based evidence-making, getting all this staff and resources to sell something versus evidence-based policy-making, which is to work out whether those selling activities actually produce a sale. You know, mm. We're not interested in allocating resources to attribution. We're interested in allocating resources to get more marketing budget. I'm not sure that's the right way for a company to function. And that's just one of many examples where I think you see an imbalance between those who are policy-based and those who are evidence-based or, you know, those who are intention-based as well. And there's a great line in the, in the book, which is um, from somebody who worked in finance at a startup and she had had a terrible day closing a P&L and the numbers were all in the wrong place and the attribution was no longer justifiable. And I took her for a glass of large red Malbec wine and to let her let off steam as it were. It's like, you've had a real shocking day. And she said, you know what? The people in ad sales aren't that bad because at least when they talk to you, you know they're lying. It's the bastards and <laughs> marketing you have to be careful of. They're scientific about lying. And I just, I'm not beating up that department. I'm just saying there's a bit of an imbalance in terms of what you could do with a strong economics team and a strong marketing team versus one or two economists or one or two thousand people in the marketing department. Let's let's um, get into the book then and talk mm-hmm. about. There's so much in it, but let's talk about. Let's get a sense of what. Tarzan Economics is all about. Give us the pitch for the book. So Tarzan Economics was an expression coined by Jim Griffin, a technologist, uh, responsible for the first ever digital file sold in the music industry, Aerosmith, in 1995. I think it predates the iPod. Wow. So so he's he's a three-strike veteran of the digital music wars. And I once heard him say this in Norway. He said, the music industry, in fact, all media industries are staring at Tarzan economics, where they cling on to an old vine, an old vine of doing business, an old vine of way of thinking, an old vine that you know gets you through next quarter's earnings calls, holds you aloft the jungle floor. And we're reluctant to reach out to this new vine through a fear of the unknown. And Tarzan economics is about giving you the confidence to let go of that old vine and reach out to the new, overcoming that fear of the unknown. 
So back then, you know, the music industry had convinced itself that kids would go back to buying CDs and plastic cases and potentially iTunes downloads. Hmm. Never going to happen. Holding on to that old vine, sorry, that old vine was going to let go of you. First 10 years of digital disruption, you know, I'd argue that the old vine, you know, cost the music industry billions after spending millions on litigation. Think about that as a ratio. You know, we, we halved in size and spent a fortune on suing consumers, suing file sharing sites, suing ISPs. Litigation was not going to get you forward. And then the second 10 years, we did perform Tars and Economics. We reached out to the new vine and you've seen a recovery, which is the envy of everyone else. You know, the newspaper industry was constantly asking me to attend their management offsites to say, how did you do it? Well, 10 years ago, you were laughing at us. Now you're trying to learn from us. And it was observations like that which made me think about the wide application of this book. So many industries are holding onto the old vine and are reluctant to let go through a few of the unknown. And then the, the pandemic happened whilst writing the book. And now it just feels like everybody's staring at their Napster moment. Everybody is dealing with tasks and economics, including the government. So, you know, unfortunate, but fortunate, you know, the book's application spread even further as a result of the pandemic. And a key tenant in all of this ability to be able to let go of one vine. And because I think it's a brilliant metaphor because, you know, the, the actual, the leap of faith that's involved in that. Are you actually leaping onto something that's going to support you is, uh, is, uh, is uh, visceral. Um, but what, what you're saying in the book is that organizations need to suppress their tendency to fight disruption and to work with it. Now that's mm -hmm. a rare trait. It's a rare thing that that anybody does, really. But um, particularly in successful organisations, where do you start with this? What what are the steps in terms of helping leaders? What advice are you giving them about how to shift their mindset and focus to be able to embrace that way of thinking? I, I think the the best example is, and it's home, home turf for myself, is, is the Spotify story because the Spotify story was one where. I can remember very clearly staring at this problem of piracy with Daniel, with Nicholas Everson, with Petra Hansen, all who are going to be stars of the next Netflix Spotify movie, by the way. We're all guessing who's going to play who in there. Paul Bethany for myself, hopefully. But still, <laughs> with, with, um, with that, we looked at this, which was, you know, kids are stealing intellectual property. You know, kids are sticking it to the men. Kids are refusing to pay for content and they're stealing it instead. And the lawyers viewed it as a legal problem. Just like that lawyer said, I'd ban the kids from swimming. If I teach them a lesson, if I sue them, they'll come back and carry on opening plastic CD cases and breaking their fingernails in the process, because that's progress. That's progress. Now, I think the abstraction that you need to understand here is what happened in June 1999 when we woke up to Napster is not that different from what's happening today. Kids can go to the internet and explore all the music they want. The only difference is... We slapped some dollar bills on it. We've monetized the process. And Daniel said back then that music consumption was not the problem. Music monetization was. I can bring a horse to water or I can bring water to a horse. And what's fascinating with Spotify's story is many of the engineers that built it were responsible for building some of the most powerful file sharing illegal P2P sites in the world. You think about uTorrent, Kazaa, Pirate Bay was a famous one. But a lot of the engineers responsible for that, think about the term poachers and gamekeepers, came over to the, the light side as it was and built Spotify. The best way to beat piracy at its own game was to build something that's superior to feeling and watch them come. And sure they did. I think we're close to like 450 million people today are willing to pay a recurring monthly fee for something they always can do and always will be able to get for free. That's an incredible achievement. Incredible mm. achievement. But the abstraction point's key for your audience, which is not much has changed from the consumer's perspective. The business changed. You know, mm. We brought water to the horse. So there's a nice picture in your book um, where you point to the shift from a kind of linear consumption of music to this non-linear relationship that uh, consumers have with music. I'm just wondering, you know, this abstraction and way of thinking, you know, your story on the beach is uh, the difference between a kind of nonlinear form of problem solving, seeing unforeseen un, un, uh, consequences, inverse problem solving. How applicable is that in, you know, that shift in non-linear non patterns you're seeing in other markets? I mean, you, you, you're seeing it, obviously, but 
how, how do you how do you think like that um, when you're used to thinking in a linear kind of abstraction from the past? Uh, there's a great example of you know bringing this to light in a very recent piece I worked on for the Economist publication, which was about the award season. So we had the Grammys, we had the Oscars, we had the BAFTAs, we had the Emmys. About people remember the Emmys. You know, we had the award season, and I worked on this piece in the Economist, which was called. And the winner is dot dot dot. Who cares? Question mark. So an example of the shift is what we've seen across media. And I really don't want to be sort of, you know, pigeonholed into music here, but across media, is we used to have gatekeepers which decided what was popular. Now we have an algorithm, which is fascinating, right? I mean, mm. there's some element of human curation there, but it's not what it was. It's nothing like what it was. So what makes you a success in terms of an award winner? It's not what the judges think is you know, working, but how the algorithm thinks it's going to work. And I think that's a pretty good example there of just how widespread this shift is. Um, you know, How do you give an Oscar for something that was on Netflix, which grew in popularity thanks to an algorithm? Let's step back a second and think about how it used to work. Yeah. You know, it's quite a big jeep. And then we get to the award season for other media sectors. I just ask your audience to think, you know, Who's the judge to say that was a success? We have other ways of determining success now. It's not top-down broadcast anymore. It's bottom-up narrowcast. You know, we're not a one-to-many type relationship. We're a many one-to-one social network. And you know, I think the awards are a really good hook to kind of you know envisage just the scale of change that's been going on behind our backs for the past ten years. That's a fascinating uh, insight into the sense of actually who is who is uh, rewarding attention um and who's guiding that and governing it so yeah you got you got me thinking aloud now and i'm actually feeling quite sorry for simon cowell which makes me feel quite sorry for myself <laughs> <laughs> so um you know we had uh rita mcgrath um here um two or three weeks ago on the show and she's Fantastic. renowned for her thinking on 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 seeing around corners and inflection points and you talk about pivotal thinking can mm-hmm. you talk to us a little bit about you know how how you spot when to pivot because that's a, obviously a key part of of jumping from vine to vine. What 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 examples have you seen in your career and and what what lessons do you take from that? Uh, so I'll give you two. I'll give you one which draws on my work around attention and another one which draws on my work around policy. Um, and I think in terms of when you need to pivot. You know, what could you be looking at? Your profit and loss account, your quarterly earnings call, your headcount projections, all these metrics that you're you're trying to capture. And I think one metric that people don't spend enough time thinking about, ironically, is attention. I, I really do not think that people start with attention first and foremost in their minds. And I think it could really help if more people did. Obviously, for the past year and a half, I had a lot of experience with the book industry. And I, I asked senior book executives, CEOs, you know, podcasts are coming up in your rear mirror here. Do you ever wonder whether podcasts are going to take away time from books? No, not really. I think we'll just carry on as normal. Really? I mean, I mean, the book industry has been stuck in its ways for a long time now. But, you know, surely you're debating whether podcasts could be taking away attention that was previously reserved for books. You know, you could have some fantastic ideas and I could get that into my head by holding a book in front of me for 16, 20, 25 hours, spread over two weeks or two months, however it works, or I could listen to a 48-minute podcast. As a means to an end, I can get what's inside your head, inside my head, far more efficiently with a podcast than I can with a book. And I'm just... Staggered that you know that industry that I'm most familiar with for the past year and a half hasn't really started even discussing the cannibalistic versus additive debate there. And I'm not saying it's going one way or the other. I'm just saying have the debate. You know, don't hmm. behave like an ostrich. So I think that's a, that's a pretty good example of like knowing when to pivot is just to apply some attention economics from base one before you pass go before you collect two hundred pounds. Think through an attention framework and work it out from there. You talk about stackable attention in that. Just before we move on, tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, you know, attention could be binary. Either you have it or you don't, or it could be stackable. You could have many forms of attention competing at once. It's quite embarrassing to think that in 2021, we're still measuring TV and radio viewership through effectively manual recall diaries. 
what did you watch last Tuesday? Please fill in your diary. And that's a representative sample. And the sample base you could fit in Hart Midlothian Stadium, which is not that big, even though we've built our new main stand. We're talking about 20, 25, 30,000 actual respondents to this stuff. I think the radio survey has actually been cancelled during lockdown as well, which is even more embarrassing. So, you know, stackable attention for the example there is when we are apparently watching TV and we're apparently watching the commercial breaks, which apparently funds the vast majority of ad spend in this country, are we? Are we looking at our phones? How do we know? Do we want to know? Or would we rather that question just went away and please take away the microphone from him because we don't want to discuss that anymore? Mm. You know, that would be an example of like stackable attention. Now, quick extension to that is, I do think there's some form of television content which is monopolistic. So when you binge watch Netflix, you're binge watching because it's got you soaked in. Mm. And that means when Netflix wins, everybody else loses. So that's a very interesting way of you know thinking about stackable attention versus attention monopolies as well. Okay. So sorry, I took you off your pivoting uh, sure. to pivot. Yeah. Uh, the other one I just wanted to touch on there was just on pivotal economics or applying pivotal thinking is to apply it to government regulation. Um, I enjoy spotting the, the anomalies of government policy. Um, as a former government economist, just it's in my blood to look at the way that government makes decisions and think, mm, does that really achieve its purpose? And I had a letter in The Economist three weeks ago titled Loony Logic. And it was in response to an article, which is about how competition authorities are competing with each other. So European competition authorities in competition with national competition authorities. I want to deal with Facebook. No, I want to deal with Facebook. No, get off. That's my patch. I want to deal with Facebook. Uh, so we have you know, hyper competition to regulate Facebook amongst competition authorities. And my, my response to the article, the article was written by Ludwig Siegel, who's a fantastic journalist. And I wrote to him first. I said, was this your work? Said, yeah, because you don't get the byline in The Economist. Well, there's a letter coming. I'm just going to warn you. And they printed it. And I'll make sure you can pop it up on your, on, on your website. But I simply said that Screaming Lord Such, who is this hilarious comedian politician, uh, who would always lose by-elections, but be dressed in beautiful, bright colors with a huge rosette, had some of the craziest policies. But his favorite policy was, we need two competition authorities. That's brilliant. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. How can you hand the role of upholding competition to a monopolist? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Like it, he was loony logic, but this loony logic actually applies here because you can't give a monopolist the job of upholding competition. You need competition for ideas. And I closed the letter off simply by saying, you need to pivot. If you were to take on 9,000 pounds of student debt to study economics, London School of Economics this year, they would tell you that a monopoly does two things. It reduces output and it increases costs. Up and down the country, that's what's being taught to students today. I ask you, if you look at the tech monopolies today, and you may notice I use a plural here, monopolies, there's more than one. If you look at the tech monopolies, there's so many of them, ironically, what they do is they expand output and reduce costs, often eliminate costs. So again, before you got past go, before you collect 200 pounds, the basic tenant of economics that's taught at university today is fundamentally the wrong way around. I'm not saying these tech monopolies are a force for good or a force for bad. I'm simply saying the way it's been taught in universities, the way it's been applied by regulatory authorities, starts off on the wrong foot. Just like I started off on the wrong foot on the beach with my dad when I was 11 years old. I came up with the wrong idea for the wrong, the wrong solution for the right problem. And, you know, that's another example of where the state needs to learn how to pivot as well, which is you might be wedded to these textbooks, but you, they're an old vine and they're going to let go of you because it's no longer applicable to say that a monopoly reduces output and increases cost. Software companies don't have marginal costs. That's the point of them, you know? So we had, we had a um, one of the people you mentioned in your book, uh, John Kay, was on the show. Uh, wow, about, my hero. Yeah, and he he's was, a walking, talking Adam Smith, that fellow. Right? He's, yeah, he's, he's a wonderful guy, and he's so lovely. Um, he, very generous with his time and uh, his insights. And uh, you cited his book, Radical Uncertainty, which was one of my favorite uh, books mm -hmm. recently. Um, how how do you think the economists within organizations need to shift? What's, what's the agenda that you think they need to be grabbing hold of in the next decade to be able to advise organizations more effectively? Well, firstly, let me just acknowledge John Kay again, because at the back of my book, I give him a special thank you, because he had this one expression. He has a, he has a wonderful way of 
saying in a sentence what would take most other people 350 pages to. And when he said to me once, he said, quotes, to be a fan of business does not necessarily make you a fan of markets, end quote. And there you have it. I'm lobbying for business. You're not lobbying for markets. Markets are a different thing. You're lobbying for the business interests of that entity that's paying your salary. That's not looking at how markets function. Markets are about allocation of resources, not about extracting monopolistic rent. So hat tip to your podcast for having him on the show. He's a, a real, I wouldn't have got through my degree without his op-eds in the Financial Times. I mean that from my heart. So to applying it to economics or an economist in business, I'll cite another Scottish economist. We're going to go around the home turf here. Gordon Brune, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer. When I was a government economist, he had this wonderful expression, which is, you need to strive for evidence-based policymaking, and you need to avoid the temptation of policy-based evidence-making. Mm-hmm. Well, right? Let's just yeah. do that again. Yeah. You want Your goal is evidence-based policymaking, the enemy is policy-based evidence-making. Buy me lots of evidence to support this bet into the podcast market. That's not evidence-based policy-making. That's data mining to find data points justifying an existing belief. And it's such a clever one-liner to hold in the front of your head at all times, which is you're not there to backslap the decisions of others. You're there to deal with inconvenient truths. It's hard to get promoted. It's hard to get the headcount. It's hard to get to work the political machine of an organization if that is your job. But you need that insulation, that independence to be a good economist, to be able to say, I know you may have spunked a gazillion dollars on this bet or this direction or this strategy or you know, this venture, but it just doesn't add up. Or you know, you find an opportunity that you can bring to light. And you need to learn that art form of just sticking to your gun, sticking to objectivity, sticking to evidence-based policymaking, avoiding that temptation of policy-based evidence-making is a sign of a good economist. And maybe I could close this one out with just one example. Another economist told me, George Magnus, who was the chief economist of UBS, now quite a profound author, uh, often on Newsnight talking about China and macroeconomic developments. In 2006, he wrote a paper which looked at the global economy, and it's a pretty damn important paper because it talked about the risk of a Minsky moment. Heyman Minsky, a bit of an erratic economist, but had this wonderful book where he looked at why stabilization is in itself destabilizing in the capitalist system. When everything is going just fine, it's when confidence becomes erratic and we all go to the casino too much. Have we been here before? Are we going there again? We'll leave that for another question. But he actually pointed out that the global economy was moving towards its own Minsky moment when credit would dry up. This is in 2006, so mm. he can bask in the glory of two, told you so economics. Around the same time, he wrote me a letter saying, you're moving to London, you're going to be working for a firm now. You're not in the government, you're in a company, but you still need to be objective. You need to march with this balancing act. Now, I happen to see bad news ahead. I happen to see this thing called the Minsky moment will come to us in the next two to three years, which it did and collapse the wealth financial system. And what we do is they position me as the independent thinker within an organization who says, I can see trouble ahead. I've informed my company so we can insulate our clients from this trouble ahead. And when the worst is over, we'll be first out of the traps to the recovery. So they position his objectivity to be advantageous for the firm. And his clients feel like, great, I'll stick with UBS because they have this great economist who can just say it for, as it is and insulate the company from inconvenient truths. The irony being UBS completely ignored his advice and almost went bankrupt during the credit crunch. But still, it's a valuable lesson for me in terms of if you are an economist within a company, yes, the company is paying your bills. But yes, you also have to stay really close to your objectivity and your analysis. You know, you got to dig your heels in at points and say, no, I'm not going to sing the party line. I see the world differently. But expressing that, even when you're on the payroll, might make your comms team turn white in shock, but can actually be quite advantageous. And I think at the PRS, I did a pretty good job of mastering that, you know, publishing work on inconvenient truths to make the songwriter and publish audience think differently about maybe there's another way we can solve this problem. In the book, you have a lovely chart, which decodes the difference between the entrepreneurs and the the kind of uh, the status quo managers. Uh, you call them farmers and builders. Mm-hmm. And 
it's, it's a really good chart um, to kind of help people to to make sense of not only you know where they are in the organization and what they need to do and, and some of the choices but it, it feels like uh, what you're you're describing is that the a good economist needs to have the the metacognition to sit above both of those to be able to balance the interests of those things rather than just be the you know the voice of reason because that those are two very different positions that the organization is adopting and trying to hold yeah. in attention the whole time so how do you how do you do that how do you hold the the tension between preserving the value of the business and its growth and innovation for the future a deep question I mean, the first thing i'll say about that term builders and farmers is that when I was exploring organizational psychology, which is your area of expertise, to be fair, not mine, but I was very fortunate to work with a professor of organizational psychology, Professor Adrian Fernand from UCL. I think he's got 75 books to his name, 5,000 published papers. I've got one book, he's got 75, maybe more even. But I, I took this idea of builders, the entrepreneurs, the disruptors, the people who can't have frameworks, and farmers, the complete opposite, they need the framework, so you don't want to disrupt. They're like, you know, yielding from the previous year's harvest, as it were. And he said, I've got it for you. So what do you mean? I got the perfect example. He said, Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. So these are two leaders. You imagine these people running your companies, people in the audience. These are two leaders with two very different personality types. Che Guevara, he wanted to go around the well creating revolutions. Fidel Castro, he had a long game, turned out to be what, five, six decade long game of managing the delicate politics of Cuba-Russia relations, Cuba-America relations, and so on. And we know what happened to Che Guevara at the end of his journey, but you know, the builder burned out as it were. But mm. a very good example, I think, of just, you know, when he hit me with that, it's like, wow, this this analogy, this metaphor is gonna have legs because Che and Castro. That makes total sense to me as well. And I think in economics, it's, you've got to be out there out front, spotting things before anyone else, distilling them down before anyone else, and you've got to learn how to communicate them. You've got to learn how to communicate for your audience. And you know, the CFO of the Spotify, Barry McCarthy, my first meeting with him, and remember he was a CFO of Netflix, who helped take Netflix public to Spotify public, my meeting with him was so abrupt, so short, so precise. I'm Barry McCarthy. I know that. I'm your new boss. I know that. You know what your job description is? No, I don't. Help me see around corners, meeting over. But it's beautiful because that's what you're trying to help a leader do. Like not you know, toe the party line, but what's, what's everyone else missing that I can help spot, bring to life, clarify, and explain. And, you know, in terms of distilling information down, I learned this trick actually in government, which was helping ministers from the Scottish government who weren't the brightest, they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed as it were, not look like idiots when they went on news night. So that's tough. <laughs> you know, when, you're, when your finance minister was previously in charge of the Glasgow Parks Authority, that's tough, okay? But um, how do you explain information to somebody in a taxi before they go live on a studio interview with a hostile interviewer to make sure they get through it? And it's, it's almost like, how would you explain it to somebody who's got two minutes before they walk into a meeting? So all your work about evidence-based policymaking has to be distilled down, that you're walking down a corridor two minutes before that person goes into a boardroom. Can you sow that seed so it takes root when they're at the table? So there's a combination of objectivity, but just being succinct, being concise and precise with your language. You know, for your audience especially, I mean, one person comes to mind there, and maybe you've already covered them to death, but... Barbara Minto or the Minto principle, the yes, pyramid principle. Pyramid, yeah. I found that I stumbled on that by mistake, by accident, but I've never forgotten how to order language thanks to that lady. Start with a problem, then the solution, then the background, then the context. Most people do it the complete other way around. No, problem statement, solve it, give me background, get me to the context, here's Tom with weather. And that transform my life it wouldn't be an exaggeration to learn you know what did barbara minto say you've got all these clever people who don't know how to talk <laughs> they're not clever you need to learn how to talk you need to learn how to still those ideas down in a way that gets to it so credit to her for that book and that amazing way of making you think you know it's been like stabilizers for me for the best part of 15 years. yeah no i totally agree it's one of my uh, cherished uh, tomes in my library i i like you i think um when i read that it inverts a couple of things because it stops you thinking out loud 
Yeah, it forces yeah. you because you know, the reason I why John, the reason why John Kay is so profoundly clear is because he's thought hard about about what the first principle is and, and he's compressed it to its simplest form and that's really hard to do, but but few yeah. people you know take the effort to go that far. If I can also name check one other author which has had a huge influence in my life and I think it would be really helpful for your audience, especially helpful. Not just if you plan to write a book, but you know, going way beyond that, just how to write. And I'm terrible at pronouncing his surname. It's a Yale professor called William Zinser, and he wrote a book called On Writing Well. And it's 30th celebration editions on Amazon for a snip. You know, change out of 10 pounds to get your hands on it. That book was a Bible for me because I was sitting in the British Library thinking, <laughs> I find this book deal, quit <laughs> my job, and I don't know how to write. <laughs> Bit of a problem, whoopsie. And then, you know, somebody said to me, you need this. And it was just one of those treasured moments of I'd read, tried to read other books about how to write. But uh, he just has this wonderful way of giving you the confidence to declutter your language. And just about every sentence I write now, I'm able to chop down, you know, to two thirds of the previous length based on the rules that he taught me. He gave me a wonderful example. He said in the book, it's like, Authors get really confused who they're writing for. First person, third person, neutral party, observational, you know, who are you writing for? And you, you go through this paragraph, beautifully written about the confusion about who you're writing for. And then he says, stop, you're writing for you. And he says, not enough people today begin a paragraph with the words, I'll never forget the time that. Wow, I don't think I've ever had the confidence to start a paragraph with the words, I'll never forget the time there. I've got the confidence. I went, so I wrote all day in the British Library, sitting on my own, playing tennis with myself. And then at the end of it, reflected on my day's work of writing. And there was 18 paragraphs beginning with, I'll never forget the time there. Like, okay. <laughs> you still can't write, but perhaps we're making baby steps in the right direction. But that book on writing well and combined with Barbara Minto's Pyramid Principle of Thinking, I mean, there's, there's a lot of guff out there. Scottish expression guff in terms of helping you, but those two, they really, really do make a difference. I cannot stress the audience enough, you know, wrap yourself around those two books and you will do very well. So you talk about inspiration coming from surprising places. And so we talk about the Ofcom framework and how that uh, influenced some of your thinking. Yeah, so it's, it's a crazy um, example of just looking around corners or leaving no stone unturned, like where do you get your inspiration? I think the last place most people would expect to find something as inspirational as this would be the National Telecom Regulator in a PDF document, in the annex, let's just be clear, in the annex to a PDF document on page 95. Uh, at the time, I think maybe three people have read this work, which is A, the author, B, his mum, and C, me. So this was not widely known, but in Ofcom, the UK National Telecom Regulator, in 2010, they had a shot at trying to present the digital day of the average consumer. And Ofcom, by the way, they do some of the best research you will ever see anywhere. I'm talking private, public, regulation, commercial, just phenomenal standard of research over there. But in this example, a fairly bold attempt to say, this is what we believe the digital day is. Now, they come up with this idea on page 95 of this document, which is we need to frame attention with two axes, okay? Access one is to say, how much relative importance do you apply to activities? And access two says, how much relative attention do you give to these activities? So our splits mm. is importance and attention. Then what they do is they say there's five forms of attention. Let me see if I can get them in order. So there's read, listen, watch, game, communicate. Okay, we're all on board here. Five forms mm. of attention two axes to a chart, we have a trade-off. And then what they do is they plot in circles, by size of circle, how many more people are engaged in this activity. So text messaging, it's a huge circle. Streaming music, it's a small circle, it's 2010, we've barely even taken off then. Okay, four steps, you know, like a Delia Smith cookbook, we now know what we're dealing with here when we try and frame this complex thing called attention. It's so simple. Never a meeting went by at Spotify without us using this framework to think about the problem. Again, before we proceed to discussing financials, before we proceed to discussing the marketing outlay, let's start with attention base one before we move to base two, whatever that base two is going to be. So when you look at it, you can see that where there's a human trade involved in the attention, that is texting a human being, calling a human being, it's up in the Northeast trajectory. 
lots of importance given to it, lots of attention given to it. When it's streaming music, weirdly, it's in the southwest corner. It's not that important, and I don't give it that much attention. Now, let's pause there. David Bowie, bless his soul, said 20 years ago that music's going to become like running water coming out of a tap, always on, always in the background. Remember those words? Yeah. Famous remark. Amazing interview. I mean, the whole interview is just jaw-dropping in retrospect. And then you have an Ofcom document telling us that music is not that important, yet it's making lots of money. Music has achieved two things nobody thought it should, could, or would. A, it's reducing its importance, but B, it's increasing its value. Nobody listening to this podcast who could tell me who's number one this week in the charts. Nobody cares. We listen to playlists. We don't even look at who we're listening to when we're listening to them. So it's a fascinating application of it. But I want to give you one very quick example of how this chart goes to work, which is Netflix. If Netflix moves northeast, that is, it's gathering in importance and gaining more attention, A, the circle will get bigger because it's getting more subscribers, and B, it's got the potential to move other circles southwest. That is, when Netflix wins, everyone else loses. Reese Hastings' gain is everyone else's pain. Social media loses, reading a book loses, listening to a podcast loses. It's a brilliant way of understanding what I call a contestability of attention. So mm. maybe too early in the day for an alcohol reference here, but is this type of attention gin and tonic to what you're doing? Is it complementary? You buy more gin, you buy more tonic. Or is it a different brand of gin that is substitutional? I think Netflix is a great example of substitutional attention. When they win, everyone else loses, which means that we all have less time to compete for as a resource because attention is scarce. Really clever way of just working attention. And wrapping that one up, just one very interesting example. During lockdown, again, a lesson from lockdown. Yes, time spent binging Netflix went through the roof. But I saw some data, which is very revealing, which is people were giving more attention to Netflix, but they didn't consider it any more important. So attention was going up and importance was going down. And the reason why explicitly was we're all spending far too much time binge watching a drama about tigers in captivity. <laughs> it puts the Ofcom framework to life, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> I've just spent six years, six hours watching this douchebag talk about having tigers in captivity. I've given them six hours of my time, but I don't feel better off. And it's a brilliant application. Whoever did that Ofcom framework deserves a knighthood because that shows it still matters in 2021. That's really interesting. And it's amazing how some of those little gems are buried. But mental frameworks are incredibly helpful. But when do they become limiting? I mean, did you find that when you were looking at that framework, there was something missing? Did you ever kind of go, we're missing something with that framework? Did it did it constrain your thinking ever, do you think? It, it, I mean, whenever you look at a framework or model, you could always throw more variables into it. But that's where mm. you also risk more noise. I, I like things which keep it simple. At some point, there's a trade-off. And here, yeah. the obvious one is clear. There's only 24 hours in a day. And if you added up all the hours those marketing experts claim that they get of your time, you get far more than 24 hours. So this is a really nice way of thinking, find me the constraint, show me the trade-off, give me the winners and losers. Full stop. Here's Tom with the weather. We're out of here. So it's... Yeah. Keeping it simple like that, I think, is useful. You could bolt on another form of media in there. Where would TikTok sit in that example, for example? You know, but you know, as a framework, it's pretty robust. Here on The Evolving Leader, we are committed to stretching the leadership conversation in every episode, and we invite you to help spread the word. If you have learned or been inspired by something you heard on this podcast, chances are others would too please consider sharing your favorite episode with your network on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here. Let's talk about um, Tower Records and the, the notion of the long tail. Do you remember Tower Records? Oh, I do, with a lot of affection. Do you remember the choice that you were given on Tower Records? Well, you'd spend maybe three or four hours in there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't just breeze in and out. You'd be in there forever. Yeah, and your student day exploded when you went there as a university student like myself. Um, do you have any idea how much choice was offered in a Tower record store? Ooh. Well, no, I could only guess at it, but I would have thought it was hundreds of thousands. So I was very fortunate because I wanted to understand what I call the Tower Records long tail. That is, we have this long tail theory which came to light in 2004, very importantly, after Tower Records went bankrupt which said Walmart offers no choice. Rapsteed, the first online music streaming service, offers lots of choice. 
watch people, demand will move from the head down to the tail. Essentially, what Chris Anderson in that blog article said is if you offer people more choice, they will take that choice and demand becomes more democratically spread. It lengthens more choice, it fattens more demand for that choice. And what I got frustrated with was people seem to think that the time stood still pre-2004. Like there was nothing else but Walmart. Well, there was lots of other things but Walmart. I spent a vast chunk of my life going into record shops. I got a vinyl collection, which is way too big for the house that I live in. And, you know, it's, it's part of my life. We need to understand choice pre-2004, pre-famous wired essay. Let's go back. Let's go back. So I went back to Tower Records to start examining the choice that they offered. Now, around about, let me just get the year right, 2013, 2014, I got to speak to Ross Solomon, the founder of Tower Records, on the phone. He's no longer with us now, but an incredible chat with him. And I said to him, did you optimize a key number of choice to offer the consumer when they wandered into your store? Like we have Dunbar's number for social networks that you can't mm. hold any more than 150 proper friendships or relationships. Um, was there a sort of Dunbar's number that you could apply to Tower Records? He said, yeah, I did. I had, a, I had quite an important number. It's like, tell me because you know, I could do some mathematics around this. He said, basically with the exception of outlier stores, I think Times Square was Times Square in New York, you know, a super large store, but the typical Tower Records store would have 40,000 unique album titles available to buy whenever you walked in. 40,000. Yeah. You know, it's 400,000 songs if there's 10 songs to an album. 40,000 unique album titles whenever you walked into Tower Records in Argyle Street in Glasgow were there ready to explore. That's a ton of choice. Now, mm. very important that we quote Barry Schwartz here in the famous book, The Paradox of Choice, where he famously said, some choice is better than none, but it doesn't necessarily follow that more is better than some. We're in a world today where I can exclusively tell you that streaming services are ingesting 75,000 new songs every single day. That's broadly similar to the inventory that the British music industry released in one calendar year during the 80s, happening every single day. Tomorrow, there's going to be 75,000 new songs competing for the attention of the 75,000 released today. The world has gone mad, but pause for a second. Mm. Ross Solomon offered us lots of choice in the late 90s and early 90s before he went bankrupt. So what I do in the book, I say, well, how much would that choice serve today? So let's plot on audio streaming and video streaming services what the top 40,000 albums would make up of overall demand. The answer is between 88 and 95%, which is just jaw-dropping. Yeah. So he found it. Yeah. If these streaming services didn't ingest 75,000 songs a day, didn't boast about hosting 70 million tracks, which you're interested in very few of them, you know, instead offered the top 40,000 albums, they would still retain 95% of their business. I mean, that's looking around corners right there. Is some choices better than, <laughs> Some choices better than none, but it doesn't necessarily follow that more choices better than some. And I think the next 10 years, we're going to see a kind of an about turn in this journey of media, not just music, podcasts. You know, two podcasts are being produced every minute right now. Not episodes, new podcasts, two every minute. So that's been about 100 since we started talking, right? Mm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn. We're going to need filters. We're going to need controls. We're going to need a way of separating the killer from the filler. I, I really think that's going to dominate the next 10 years of media. So we've asked this question of um, a, a number of people, including um, John, John Kay, and, uh, and we, we also had Kevin Kelly, uh, the founder of Wired, on oh, wow. as well um, a couple of weeks ago, um, about their outlook for the economy, for their forecast for the economy. What, what's your take on the, the kind of short, medium, long-term outlook for the global economy? Well, I would like to come back to Kevin Kelly later on with the work that I did on Twitch was inspired by a 2008 essay of him. We'll, we'll park that for now. But in terms of the outlook for the economy, I think the first thing to say is be wary of government statistics. And I have a whole chapter in the book dedicated to this. It's called Judging the State We're In. And I think the mantra of that chapter is what matters most to us is being measured least. Um, I'll give you two very quick examples, and then we can explore how this works in terms of measuring and recovery. But here's one. I'm, I'm running on Highgate Hill the other day, uh, get up to Dartmouth Park Reservoir, a great place to get advantage of the whole of London, real hidden gem of London, the view you get from up there. And I could see smog across the London skyline. And it made me think, 
could I use pollution levels to measure the economic recovery? Hey, you know what? We're polluting the same level that we were in February 2000, uh, 2020. We must be back to where we were. That would actually be a pretty objective, accurate statement. But back to my mantra of what matters most is being measured least. Is that really what type of recovery we want to measure? Mm. Could be. You know, you just want to know when are we back to where we were, like some imaginary figure that we get back to where we know that we've fully recovered. I don't think pollution levels are the right way to measure recovery. We need to measure something else. Secondly, and I'm going to get a little bit technical here, is to show you where some of the disparities in what we're measuring really come to life. I'm going to look at education for a second. If you think about during the heart of lockdown, for those in the audience who have got kids who are homeschooling, um, dealing with the whole business of you know schools trying to develop YouTube channels, which seem to take forever, um, even though you can actually set one up in the time it takes to do this podcast. Uh, so if you look at education and how it's measured in gross domestic product, you have two of three big measures. You have income and output. Now, on income measures, no teacher was furloughed. They're all public sector workers. No teacher was fired. So the income measure of education was completely stable during the mm. pandemic. Nothing happened. Yet the output measure, as we all know, fell off a cliff. And we have kids missing months and months, if not years, of education that they may or may not be able to claw back. Yet, according to this mythical figure of gross domestic product that we all sort of place our bets on, we put all our chips on red with this one, they're supposed to add up. So how do the statisticians in Newport, where the Office of National Statistics is headquartered, marry these two things up when output is completely you know, evaporated, but income is rock solid stable? What do you do to make these things add up to say, oh, by the way, here's the state of the economic recovery? I really want to plant the seed in your audience's head, which is this, this is no way to continue. We cannot keep on looking at gross domestic product as a thing which matters most to us, that's going to reassure us that this government did a good job getting the recovery back to place. And even our government is, you know, to their credit, Rishi Sunak especially, beginning to question gross domestic product. Is it the thing that really matters most to us? Or should we be measuring something else? I think that's a, that's a big thing to consider. Um, back to the recovery, I would add one other metric there, which I think is valid, which is you hear talk of pent-up demand that you know, there's going to be a cash splurge. Um, I just did some maths before doing this podcast in preparation for it, in preparation for this question, which is, roughly speaking, the additional cash in pocket for the average British consumer has grown by about 16 18% since lockdown. Now, I don't want to bore you with the details of how you calculate this out, but you're looking at cumulative savings over and above the post, the pre-lockdown level. So we have around about a fifth more money in our pockets to spend than we did before lockdown. So it's interesting to know there is a figure out there, and it's probably bogus, but there is a figure out there that you can use. Now, let's say there's some credibility to that figure. What that figure doesn't factor in is the balance sheet of consumers. That is, house prices have gone up and the stock market's gone up. So if you had a chunk of your savings in a, like, I don't want to name and a particular fund about a legal and general tech tracker, you're probably up 40, 50, 60% before lock, where you were before lockdown. Those Bailey Gifford funds are up 80, 90%, most of them, since lockdown. So your savings have exploded in value and your house price has accumulated maybe 20, 30% of value. So people have more cash in pocket, more on their balance sheet than ever before. So I'm, I'm confident that there's more money to spend. Yes, I think they're going to be spending it differently. And, and what about the very long term? You know, like the, the the kind of ten year picture. What what what's your your thoughts about the outlook, particularly as you know, some of these new uh, economies, the tech economies start to morph and change? What, what what's your thinking around that? Well, I think I don't know how to about this, but it's going to become harder and harder to measure these new economies, these new tech economies, um, in Sweden, which. I have this joke with Hal Varian. Hal Varian said, the best way to predict the future is look at what rich people do today and scale it. Well, that's pretty cool. My conclusion is look at what Swedish people do today and scale it instead. You know, mm. different ways. And Sweden's a lot more equal country than most. So, you know, when you look at Sweden today, their service sector exports is worth more than their domestic manufacturing base. All right. 
I know how to measure domestic manufacturing. Will Page builds a car. Here's the GDP of Will Page building a car. How on earth do you measure service sector active force in a credible manner? So when your economy is that advanced, you kind of give up hope and trusting what you're trying to measure as well. And I also think that there's another problem brewing. And I touched on this in my book very briefly, but if you look at cloud computing as something which has transformed all of our lives, whether we're aware of it or whether we haven't, there's a problem with location of that activity. You know, are we measuring the cloud at all? I used to have local servers to run my business. That's a tangible thing. I can touch that. Now I give up on that capital expenditure and spend current expenditure leasing cloud services like AWS. Well, I've let go of capital spend, gone on to current spend, and apparently I've boosted productivity. For one, the entire economic model has been turned upside down because spending more on capital is supposed to boost productivity, not spending less. Mm. But it goes further. Like, where, where is this cloud being located? So, you know, cloud is transforming businesses, but all its GDP is booked in Washington State of the United States of America. Well, Britain felt the benefit of that. How do we measure that benefit? Then when you just take the observation of the cloud, which I explore more depth in the book, and you, you expand that further, you think about what Stripe is doing to payment systems, their ambitions, where you can set up an international company and, you know, I'll put a word on it, minutes as opposed to uh, months. Um, you know, where does that activity get located? So I, I genuinely think there's a problem of locating activity. Tech doesn't see borders that governments do, and that is where the rubber's going to hit the road in 10 years' time. So what's your um, focus now? Um, having written the book and taken a step back and thinking about consolidating all of your observations, what, what, what's what's next for, for Will Page? I love that question. Um, grateful for it. It makes me focus. <laughs> Being a scatterbrain. No, I, I really have been working on some fascinating stuff. Firstly, I'll just mention, uh, you mentioned Kevin Kelly mm. earlier on. The work with Twitch was fantastic. It's at twitchrockonomics.com. That's the, the name of the website, a beautiful website. I take no credit for that. A wonderful woman called Alice Clark designed it. And the company Twitch basically approached me and said, we have all this music happening on our platform during lockdown. We don't understand how it's working. Our critics don't, our plaudits don't. Can we give you the keys to the car and work out what the economics of live streaming is? And that was fascinating for me. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you the overarching question about why it should be fascinating to every one of your audience in a second. But I started by thinking about Kevin Kelly when he had this thousand true fan story. And chapter four of my book is called Make or Buy, exploring you know, when do you see controlled intermediary? When do you decide to go it alone? I got to work with Radiohead and their management team on telling the famous In Rainbow story in that chapter, a great go it alone, make as opposed to buy story right there. Got to explore Charles Dickens, who did something very similar many, many years ago as well. But you know, Twitch is allowing people to go straight to their fans with their own channel. So in media, especially in television, you'll know this term over the top, OTT. Mm. When I looked at the Twitch model, it's your channel and you go over the top to monetize your fans. So if your fans want to give you five bucks a month, they can. They want to give you 10 a month, they can. They want to give you 20, they can. They want to give you donations on top, they can do that too. They want to give you like pay for songs to be performed on Streamlabs, they can do that as well. All these ways in which the artists go over the top to get direct to the fan. And that was really inspiring for me to go back to Kevin Kelly's Thousand True Fans essay of if you can get a thousand true fans to really cough up a lot of cash, you can see a lot more money than you would do by going through intermediaries and getting to potentially a million fans giving you half a penny per stream, to which you only see 20% of that half a penny per stream because it's a, a typical artist's royalty. So credit to Kevin Kelly, thrilled that you had him on your show with that. Now, how do I take that focus on Twitch and make it applicable to the diverse audience that you've got listening to your podcast? The question I concluded that I needed to solve then, just like my dad taught me to solve when I was 11 years old, was this. Live streaming is not going away when live music returns. Therefore, how do they coexist? Question mark. And that's a beautiful way of applying what my dad told me at the age of 11 to something in 2021 which is so relevant, by the way, today, because we had the news of the government bailout for the live music you know, industry, something I've been working on backstage, which is, are we going to have 5 million people with Billie Eilish backstage with her live stream before she goes on stage to perform to 50,000 people in a muddy field? That's not such a radical thought. Hmm. You know, That's not such a radical thought. That could be the new normal for one 
very famous established industry called live music. They're going to combine them both. So it's fascinating to think about, you know, how I've applied my focus to Twitch since, since completing the book and then seeing that bear fruit with a the return of live music being announced this morning, which is fantastic news, but also just seeing so many live streaming platforms pop up around the internet, all trying different things. You know, Travis Scott working on Fortnite, I worked on that one for him and just, you know, realizing, interesting observation there, Travis Scott on Fortnite, phenomenal success on audio streaming after the Fortnite experience, not much activity on YouTube. Now, is that because when I'm gaming on Fortnite and I'm watching Travis Scott, so it's a visual content, I don't need to go to YouTube to see more visual content. You know, mm-hmm. I love breaking new bread and getting to work on projects like that. That's proper breaking new bread. I got to do the data backend for the Billie Eilish live stream event. And the question that was stumbling on there was, I can look at city level data to see where she's picked up on streams after the, the event to see whether that cities are the ones that she would tour with when she's got 50 Arctic lorries driving around America. Again, that's breaking new bread. People aren't thinking like, I want to be the first kid on the block to tackle those questions. And that's the hunger that I think helps an economist, you know, make an impact is what, what, what's everyone else missing here? Live streaming doesn't involve 50 Arctic lorries. Live streaming doesn't involve travel insurance. We can get to any city we want. Turned out for her, the Bronx was her number one city. Does she play in the Bronx? No, maybe she should. You know, that's breaking new bread. What jumps out from from what you're talking about there is the uh, the comment that John Kay made about the question of what's going on that few people actually ask it. It's the kind of most profound question: what's actually going on here, and you, you know, the ability to notice what's happening and to spot things that other people aren't seeing. And it seems that uh, that that's a your pattern recognition skills are highly attuned to seeing what's what's actually going on. Maybe one way of building on that observation, and I can stand in John Kay's shadows for a second, is I've often said, I want to read across the columns, not down them. Yeah. So if you look at how departments and firms think, they often read down their column of data and say, here's what I achieved last quarter. Over to you. Here's what I achieved last quarter. Over to you. Here's what. Okay, we have three columns. Who's going to bother to read across them? Um, back to the example of books and podcasts. We're trying both. Great. You look at the relationship between them. Didn't think about that. Read across the columns, not down them. That would be my big sort of response to that John Kay suggestion. Well, on that uh, that great insight, I'm going to bring it to a close, Will. Um, I'm so grateful for you for you joining us. Um, I love the book. Really recommend it. I think it's uh, it, it's so relevant to you know not in, not just the music industry, but for any industry thinking about disruption um, and. Uh, everybody should get an economist like you thank you so much that was a good thanks will no really enjoyed that it's fabulous until next time remember the world is evolving are you